This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 469. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 469 you're listening to. My guest today is the return of Ryan Ulyate, who is a Grammy-nominated producer, engineer, and musician who's worked with Tom Petty, George Harrison, the Traveling Wilburys, Mick Fleetwood and Friends, and ELO, as well as many, many, many others. And Ryan originally appeared on WCA number 378 a couple years ago, but I'm bringing him back because he actually has a record out. And that record is up for a Grammy. And I wanted to have him on to talk about that process because it's interesting because he's a very accomplished producer and engineer, but here he is on the other side of the glass. And I wanted to talk to him about that. So we're going to get into that as well as some other stuff. Very happy Ryan's back. Ryan Elliott coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about staying calm and staying humble. Robert De Niro has this quote on YouTube. I'm sure you can find it. I'll include a link in the show notes for you uh, so you don't have to hunt. He's sitting with a, a round table of high profile actors and he's talking about success and talking about a conversation he was having with, I believe it was his grandson. And I'm gonna paraphrase here. Essentially, he was saying, when you have some success, you need to remain calm. Uh, you don't wanna overextend yourself and essentially know that people come and people go and you could be replaced at any time paraphrasing but you'll get the direct quote when you click on the link i'll provide for you you know i've seen and encountered a lot of audio professionals uh in the near 10 years i've been doing the show and quite honestly you know maybe it's 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 my luck but many of my friends peers colleagues they're cool they keep a cool head. They have great, they've had some great success. I have run into the occasional person, done the occasional interview, won't name names. And um, where you do encounter people who have had a little success and they let it go to their head and they act out and behave in particular ways, counter to De Niro's advice here. And it's really, it's, it's not fun to be around. It's actually highly annoying. Kind of makes you want to punch them all in the nose. Here's the thing, just remember, as audio professionals especially, we're easily replaced, uh, we are not invincible, and if you get some success, as De Niro says, keep calm, keep working, don't overextend your, yourself, don't start spending or acting in ways counter to your, your intuition about how you should do those things. If you've been living below your means successfully for a while. Don't start going out and buying new cars the minute you do a high profile project uh, because the phone could stop ringing. And you know, there have been occasions where some of us get on these big projects and they, the projects go for a long time. And in that time, people kind of forget about you because you're, you're so embedded and so unavailable that they call other people. It's not impossible to have a string of successes and it, have it extend for a period of time, but there are fluctuations. There are ups and downs. You know it, I know it. Uh, so plan accordingly, plan financially 
Don't go crazy on the spending. Don't spend money you don't have. Uh, Just keep working. Stay calm. Keep your senses about you. Keep the working class audio ethic, you know, just use, use what you got. Only acquire what you really need for the project. And when you do get the success, don't think you're better than everybody else. You're still the same audio pro that you were before. So be cool and be gracious and just thank the universe that uh, you are in the position that you are in if you find yourself at a higher level position. Yeah, be gracious. Yeah, I'll just repeat that again. Be gracious to the people that are still working at it, that are trying, because you could be in that position again one day. So it's all about staying humble and it's all about uh, keeping the focus, keeping your eye on the ball and not changing your uh, morals or your uh, personality when success comes. Yeah. And as our good friend Andrew Shep says, just don't be a dick. So that's it. Nothing more to say there. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. 
If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Ryan Elliott here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Ryan, welcome back to the podcast. It is great to be here. Thank you very much, Matt. Oh, yeah. Good to see you. Uh, For the audience, Ryan actually was here March 14th of 2022, and we have very specific reasons of bringing him back so soon because I think that there's some cool stuff going on with him that I really wanted to dive into, and I thought you all as listeners would find it fascinating. So I thought it justified to bring Ryan back this quick. And we're going to get to that, so I'll tease you a little bit. So... Since we talked in March of last year, obviously you and I have talked many times and have seen each other many times between now and then, but what's been going on in your world since we talked last? Well, in my world, I've been working on the Tom Petty catalog, and I think at that point, we I was still working on a thing called Live at the Fillmore, 1997, which was just this fun, fun box set that we made, taking the best songs from a big live run that they did at the Fillmore in January and February of 1997. And we got the best tracks and the best things, and we put together just a four-hour mega box set. And it was a lot of fun. We finished that up, and I just decided, well, you know, I had these songs rattling around in the back of my head because I've always been a songwriter, But that was always just kind of a background thing because I had so much other real work to do (laughs) with people as a producer and an engineer. But I decided it's just time to finally see if I could record some of my own songs. I went down this long road (laughs) and made an album of my own music, brought in some great musicians to play on it, and just had a ball, had a blast. And because I had been involved in Dolby Atmos since 2020, I decided that this album was going to really be specifically made for Atmos, meaning the parts as we were creating them, I was always thinking about where they might be placed in the 714 surround system. Mm -hmm. And we just spent a lot of time and made an album. It was a very satisfying thing to do. (laughs) And it's got to be... I mean, I I know from being a drummer, when you spend so many years as an engineer and then you go back and you put musician hat on, it's a very different experience. Tell me about how you adjusted to the different role there. Well, it's funny. It's a lot easier producing somebody else than producing yourself. I'll tell you that much. It's just that thing where, you know, is this good? (laughs) And when you're looking at someone else's thing, you've got, there's, there's a certain objectivity you know, when you're kind of stepping back and forth between the performer and the producer and you're the same person, it can get rough, you know. I was probably harder on myself as a producer on me <laughs> and harder on my producer as an artist. So it's a tough thing, but, you know, we managed to get through it and I'm actually quite proud of it at, at the end of the day. But it certainly is a different process. It's really different just being able to do something and then stand back and look at it as a producer and be able to kind of just jump back and forth, you know, between the imaginary uh, glass window, so to speak. 
did you find it hard to make decisions for any any particular reason? No, I don't. Actually, it's funny. The actual making of the music and cutting the tracks and all that stuff was really pretty fun and seamless, and we just had a great time doing it. The hardest thing for me was the lyrics, really. Just trying to write some words that didn't sound stupid. (laughs) (laughs) It's like... I was so lucky to work with some just amazing people, but specifically Tom Petty, who was just such a brilliant writer. I mean, that was the standard that I was going for. I don't have no idea. You know, that's I could never reach it. But I wanted to do something that was really good. So I really spent a lot of time on the words. That's probably where most of the faffing about, as my wife Judith would say, <laughs> that's where most of the faffing about was done. Just going back and recording something, listening to what it sounds like. And the, okay, does it say something and or does it sing well? And that whole process was probably the most challenging thing for me out of all of it. Yeah, I find working on any past band music from my past very challenging in making decisions because when it's somebody else's situation, I can act quickly, decisively. But when it's my own... I'm challenged, I, and it slows me down. And I'm wondering, did you feel that at all? Yeah. We were cruising along real good until we got to the vocals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, once again, for me, the toughest thing is the words. But once I had them, then it's just like you just get to have fun. I had so much fun doing all the vocal parts because you've got this amazing sonic palette with immersive audio. So I was able to do big background parts where I'm singing four parts and each one of them are four tracks and kind of like what Jeff Lynne was doing with Tom Petty on Free Fall and those kind of things where you have those big kind of choir parts that jump in. I had so much fun. You know, I probably had too much fun. Uh, you know, there's a lot of vocals on this record, <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. That part of it was so fun. The first song is called Dreamland and there's an interesting story behind it. The way I did the tracks is I basically kind of made demos and I got the tempo right and I got the song construction right and I put in some mock-up drums just to kind of give me a sense of what the song would be like. Then at that point, I brought in Josh Hove, who's this this amazing guitarist who is all over this album and he's one of the true stars of this album. I brought him in and we started putting on guitar parts and he started playing all these surf riffs. He started playing like, you know, all these kind of Dick Dale surf parts. All of a sudden, that day, that song turned into this kind of wacky surf track. And in that song, then all of a sudden, it became the California story. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, that's my California song. You know, like the Eagles have Hotel California and Californication and California Dreaming. And so this became my California song because it had all these guitars in it. And, you know, it came time to do backgrounds. It's like, well, you got to go, you know, if it's a California (laughs) song, you got to have that, right? So I love the process of when one idea leads to the next idea. The guitars leading to the song being about California. I write the lyrics, and then, of course, it's about California, so I got to go, you know. (laughs) It was all of a sudden kind of like the Beach Boys showed up. It was a really fun process in that sense. What advantages do you think you bring to the table 
or we as audio professionals can bring to the table when we're working on our own music because it's a different game. It's the separation of, we'll call them the separation of powers just to have a yeah. play on words. But, you know, the, the musician usually comes to the recording professional and the two join forces to make this work. So you are both. Mm -hmm. What advantages do you think you had by doing that? Well, the advantages I had is that I've had a pretty good sense over the years of how to fit things together, how a part works against all the other parts in a record, how to make things that don't cover other things up, how to see the sonic palette where you can see everything clearly or hear everything clearly and nothing's muddying up something else. And it's just kind of an instinctive thing that we've done over the years where, you know, you learn that you don't want to put this vocal down at this low kind of range because it's going to bump into the guitar or whatever, or this riff shouldn't be here because it's on top of that. So it's a lot of kind of the placement of all these elements and the mixing of them, which is kind of intuitive for me. And I think bringing that sense of arrangement and just kind of being able to define the sonic space in a clear way is something that I've learned over the years and probably gives me an advantage in this project in that this project's pretty dense. There's a lot of tracks, but I wanted to do something that's a little bit over the top, but yet it still hangs together like music. It's not something where there's too much going on. It's a lot of really focused stuff going on. Interesting. And then what about when it came time to choosing who to work on it with you? I'm sure you had a list of musicians in mind right off the bat that you would bring in. Did you ever bring in any other audio people? Well, it was mastered by Michael Romanowski, who does mastering for immersive audio. I've known Michael for a number of years, and this is really the first chance I had to work with him. I wanted to see what the deal was with mastering for this medium. And he really did a wonderful job. So that was probably my other person I relied on in terms of just getting an audio opinion of things. Yeah. Um, and he did a really good job, and he was very respectful of what I was trying to do. He didn't go in there and just change everything. He had a very respectful touch to you trying to understand what I was trying to get across and still help make it work in a way that it works across all sorts of systems. You know, And I've heard this album on several systems. I heard it the other day. Dolby has this Mercedes-Benz, this really high-end Mercedes-Benz. And that car actually has Atmos in it now. It's a production car you can buy. And I listened to it in that, and it sounded fantastic. It sounded really good. So I think the idea that bringing Michael in to help me make something that I know would translate to everything was really useful. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the musicians and all that stuff, it's a very egotistical thing, I guess, but I just wanted to do everything as, as much as, as I could. So I ended up doing all the vocals and I ended up playing bass, played keyboards. And then for the guitars, we brought in, like I said, Josh Hove, who's just this amazing guy and he knows how to play everything. We were sitting in the control room together and then his amp was out in my studio, which is at my studio is actually my living room. So his amp was out there and we had it reamped and stuff. So we could hear the sounds out there, but we were sitting together, you know, and he'd play a lick. And I'd say, well, what about if it went boom, boing, doing, not doing, 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 you know, whatever. And he was so good at working with me 
And coming up with these parts, between the two of us, we just got all these wonderful guitar parts and sounds and stuff. So that was when I decided that the instrumental palette for this album was going to be set in 1973. So it was going to be a bunch of guitars, organ, piano. The most high-tech keyboard was going to be a Mellotron. And I like the idea of really relying on the guitars and those kind of classic instruments. It helped focus me because I had a palette that I could work with, and it gave it a direction. So that's where we went with it. We did just crazy stuff on the guitar. You know, you're detuning things, and you're playing half a lick and letting the strings ring out. And then you can't really do the other part of the lick, so then you put that on a different track and just crazy stuff. Um, And then at the end, when we had it pretty much sorted out, I brought in one of the best drummers on the planet, Stephen Ferroni. And Ferroni came in, he listened to what I've got, and he kind of made some notes about how the arrangement goes and stuff like that. You know, and then it's like, okay, turn off those shitty drums and let me play. (laughs) And he just went in there, and all of a sudden these songs, which were, you know, kind of nice, he turned them into this powerful thing. And he's so good because there's not one time he hits anything that's not the thing that should be hit at that point. There's not one extra little flourish or fill that's kind of like, huh? Everything is just so focused on the music. He's so good. He just took it to a whole different level after we put him on it. And for the listener who's not familiar with the players here we're talking about, Steve is the drummer of the Heartbreakers, of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers fame. That's and, right. And, you know, and lots of other stuff. Average white man, Duran Duran. He's He's been on a million things, you know. Yeah. He's just a fantastic drummer. And he's a good friend. I love the guy. We've known each other for coming up on 20 years, I think. Yeah. Well, speaking of knowing people for around that time, just back to Romanowski for a second. Just want to give yeah. a shout out to, to Michael. He was on episode 309. Michael and I also have a long history. I think I've known Michael since 99 or 2000. And... He's had a great run here recently with winning some Grammys. And speaking of which, this album, your album, is up for a Grammy in the immersive audio category. So I'm really happy for you there that that's been nominated for a number of reasons. Number one, because it's you, because you're just such an awesome guy. Number two, it's an independent release. And number three, it's in the immersive audio category, which is an area that we're both passionate about. And that's exciting to see all of that kind of come together. So it's it's pretty damn cool. So congrats on that. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I'm still kind of blown away, you know, by it. And it's just, it's really an honor to have it be recognized like that. Yeah, it's just a little seat of the pants indie project, really, you know. But I was able to release it through this website called immersiveaudioalbum.com where you are able to download high-quality files but you have to have the right system to play them back on. That's right. <laughs> so it's right now it's really a niche thing for people, for super-duper audiophiles. But I want to see that kind of thing happen more. By putting the files up on the website, I was able to get it in the marketplace and also get it to a place where it would be considered. And I'm really grateful to have that opportunity. And it's a really great opportunity for people who do want to create for this space. I think the more that people create for this space, specifically for immersive audio, the more it's going to grow. I can see a real market for these indie projects. That website, immersiveaudioalbum.com, has all sorts of really cool bands. There's a lot of really good music on that site. 
I would just love to see that kind of thing get adopted more. Also, it is streaming on Apple Music, which I think is great. Apple's done a great job. I think it sounds fantastic. So that's another place where people can hear it. Yeah, and I want to dive into this a little bit because this plays into the economics a little when it comes to record making. And maybe many of you listeners haven't heard of Immersive Audio Album. I think Ryan was the one that turned me on to it. And as a result, you know, we're talking about releasing indie records. Let's get to this point first. The fact of the matter is, is that on that site, people and primarily audiophiles because of the nature of how it's constructed and the, the file container, which is called MKV for Atmos files, is how they're presenting it. They're taking our ADM files that we create in Atmos and they're running it through this Dolby converter and they're turning them into these MKV files. You know, it's a couple step process. I won't get Yeah, there's a, well, there's a true HD file, which is a file that Dolby has. And I think when they do Blu-rays and things like that, and then they turn it into this MKV file, which is a file that you can use certain players that recognize it, that it's a Dolby Atmos file. And it goes out through HDMI to your super duper TV. Now it could also go out through HDMI to a Sonos soundbar. So it doesn't have to be a super duper $10,000, $20,000 speaker setup. It can be something very simple too. Oh. You've got to go through a certain kind of interface and a box to get it to work. But yeah, it's it's there. And the, the key thing here is for the listener is that these files that you're putting up there, your record is up for sale. So that means that if you go on the site, whether you're a subscriber to their email list or not, you can buy Ryan's record as a download. Like going right. back to the old day, the old days in yeah. quotes of digital downloads. So there's an economic opportunity there for the indie artist. And as a direct result of your turning me on to this, I'm working with these young guys doing this jazz record, and I'm releasing this in conjunction with them on immersive audio album, hopefully before the end of the year, if not at the beginning of the year. And it's gonna be a real interesting process because it's like, oh. Well, this brings the possibility of the artist making money to the table again. Like you could sell a number of downloads and make more in a month than than they would in a month of streaming. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And I agree. I think that that's a really good model for indies because like you said, you'd have to stream the things. I don't know how many times to make anything. So it, it's a good way for artists to put their work out there and then to get recognized and you are getting, as a buyer of these things, you're getting a really good sounding file. You don't have to worry about whether you've got the bandwidth to stream it fast enough. It's not an MP4, which is still a kind of compressed format. It's pretty damn hi-fi. I was going to say, isn't it essentially like, it's almost like a FLAC file. It's like it's a lossless file, but it's compressed in its size so it can travel quick down the pipeline. Is that... Yeah, it's it, well, they're fairly large files. I think a FLAC is probably the closest thing to it that you could describe it. I downloaded it and listened to it on the same speakers that I mixed it on. And I listened to it versus the ADM, which is like the master file mm-hmm. of it. And it sounded the same to me. You know? So it's pretty good. It's, it's really good. But to also cater to the mass population, it's also, as you mentioned, it's on Apple Music, it's on yeah. it's on all the streaming services. Um, mm-hmm. So- this- Well, right now, it's, right now it's just on Apple Music. Okay, yeah. but you did release a stereo version of it too. 
Well, yeah, you do. And actually, for the streaming services, you have to. For Apple Music, you have to do a stereo and an immersive. They won't just take an immersive. Okay. They want to make sure that everybody can hear it on whatever they've got. So, yeah, there is a stereo version of it. And the stereo version is a different mix. I didn't do a, a down mix of the immersive for the stereo mix. The stereo mix is something that I put together first, just so I could get a sense of what everything sounded like. And in fact, to really know if everything really does work together, because stereo is going to let you know pretty quickly if you've got something that shouldn't be there. <laughs> it's good to have the stereo mix. But the thing that I, like I said, the thing I'm really kind of excited about is the immersive mix. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I will confess that this approach, you didn't take this approach, but this actually is an approach I'm taking now that I, I'm taking with this jazz record and I'm actually taking it. Andrew Sheps had referred a client to me and I'm mixing that in this way as well. And that is, I'm actually starting in an Atmos mix and monitoring the live 2.0 mix as I go and doing them both at the same time in the same Pro Tools session. And it's quite fascinating. I don't want to get too into the weeds, of course, with this and bore the listener to death. It's like watching paint dry, but I'm finding it a great new way of working and it's working out for me. I'll just say that. That's great. If that works and you can get that to work, then it also would save a lot of time in a way if you could make one mix work for stereo and for immersive. Yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I wonder if you have some wisdom that came from making this record as an audio professional, as a musician, because I know that a lot of my listeners out there, they're not just audio professionals. A lot of them are musicians and maybe they're a little hesitant to put out their own stuff. Or I know in my particular case, I guess I prioritize all the paid stuff that I've got on the plate and I de-emphasize anything I personally have going on. So I tend to focus on everybody else's stuff. So do you have any words of encouragement to other audio professionals out there who are kind of in your position about putting stuff out and maybe they're hesitant? 
or lessons you've learned from this process? I'm still learning the lessons from this process. And it really is a different thing to do, to put yourself out there. And my LinkedIn profile is definitely expanded. (laughs) So I, I, I don't know. I think you should. I mean, the thing is, the barrier to entry is pretty damn low, really, when you think about it. All you got to do is just make a couple of tracks or whatever, mix them. And if you want to put them up on a website, you can do it. And then you see if anybody likes it. I mean, in a funny way, the most rewarding thing for me about this project was just doing it. I think if you've got music inside of you, you should do your best to at least express it. And then then you'll see it. But the thing is, you don't have to get a record deal and have all that stuff. It just doesn't really matter much anymore. I shopped around and, you know, nobody wanted to sign me. You know, what am I? (laughs) Am I touring right now? No, I'm just a dude who lives in the studio. I just made this thing. So I would just say, why not go out there and put something out? And you might really be surprised by the fact that maybe it's going to be good. I think we should. I think we all should as people who are engineers and producers, et cetera, I think we all at some point do need to kind of step into the other shoes and just take it for a test drive. I think it's important. I think it's important to understand how that process works, whether it's the simplistic act of uploading something to DistroKid or to Immersive Audio Album, going through the motions so you understand what it is the musician goes through that mm-hmm. we work with and whose money we take to make help them make stuff. If we understand the process, I think we can help them make better decisions in the process. Yeah, and speaking of DistroKid, I, that's what I did use. I used DistroKid to get it to Apple Music. And it was really simple and the interface was really clean. It was something that when you do that, they walk you right through it. So give it a shot. What have you got to lose, really? What have you learned about doing this that might alter your way of working with artists in the future when you're back on the other side of the glass? You know, I don't I don't really know because the artists that I've worked with, they're established. They have people that do the whole thing. So I expect in that sense, I'll go back to doing what I normally do, which is just work on the project and you deliver the master. And then there's some opportunities for interview and promotion. Then I'm just another part of the big promotion system for that artist. I'd probably just be happy to go back to my normal role, knowing that this thing that I made kind of exists in the world. The amount of success from this project that I'd like to get would be enough to justify doing another one, really. I'd love to make another album at some point. Mm -hmm. It's just too fun making music. And I think that's one thing that, that I just love. I just love the making of it. I just love the doing of it. I think that's really the thing that just makes me happy. It's just going in there and throwing a bunch of guitar parts on stuff or having someone like Ferroni come out and just kick ass. Those are the happiest moments for me when I'm just in there doing it and making it happen. So I'd certainly love to have the opportunity to do more of that with my own music. As far as the other stuff is concerned, you know, I love working on great music, you know, and I've been so lucky and blessed working with, with Tom Petty specifically, and then with his family after after he passed. You know, and we're doing some great stuff, some great music that's coming out. So I'm happy to do that too. Does that take up a lot of your time, the catalog stuff for the Petty Estate? Yeah, yeah. We just, well, I mean, like the last thing I just did was this fall, there was an album that I co-produced with Tom and 
and Mike Campbell called Mojo, the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album. The family wanted to put out a deluxe version of that, and they think they put it out on Tom's birthday, I think, on October 20th. There was some extra tracks, and we did a Dolby Outmost mix of that, which was really fun. And Michael Romanowski mastered that, too. So that was something new, and that's something that's out there. And then I also remastered the stereo for the streaming services. So those kind of projects are really fun. I, I love to keep doing that. I'd love to do the Dolby Atmos of that entire catalog. That'll happen when the family and the powers that be want to roll it out. And so far, they've been really good in terms of the way they're timing the releases. So that's just something I'm looking forward to. That process of doing that back catalog work of, of Petty's past albums, am I oversimplifying it to say that basically, you know, the family makes a decision that, hey, this should be in Dolby Atmos. Ryan, can you just take care of it? Here's the tapes, go. Or is it more yeah. complicated? Yeah, I think that's like that. I think they trust what my sense of it. And I was really close to Tom too. I'm, I'm close to everybody in, in the orbit, you know, Mike Campbell, Ben Mountench. We're all on the same page kind of sonically. I'm blessed actually that they do trust me to, to do this stuff and not screw it up. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I mean, you've been part of the camp for a long time, so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did the Mojo album, we did in 5-1 back in when it came out around 2010. We convinced Warner Brothers that they should put out a Blu-ray that had a 5-1 mix and a high-res stereo mix. And Tom was really into that. You know, I said, hey, Tom, we should do this surround sound thing. He says, yeah, we should. And he was behind it 100%. I know he'd be behind this 100%. I mean, I just know, I think I might have told this story before, but the first album I did in Atmos of the Petty Catalog was Wildflowers. And I remember listening to It's Good to Be King in 714, and it was just so beautiful. And I just said, man, he would just love this. He would just, I know it. So I think that's another fun thing about kind of getting back to the immersive things as well. If music is kind of a spiritual thing for you, and it was for him and for so many creative people that I know, immersive just gives you a deeper experience of it. I mean, you can feel it. It's powerful and it's pretty magical. That's why I like it. Let me ask a potentially antagonistic question, and that is Blu-ray. Is that a viable thing in your book now? Because you and I have kind of talked outside of this interview about the possibility of doing a short run of Blu-rays for yeah. your album. Who listens to Blu-rays? Who's got Blu-ray players? Is it still the audiophile crowd? Yeah, it's, it's an audiophile thing, but you know, there's a market for it. Pure audio is a great format. And there is a market. I think it might be more European. And I think it might be more in Japan. Yeah. But I like the idea of having a physical product as well. And I'm looking into that about doing a limited run for this album. It takes a long time to print up things and it might be a couple months off. But I kind of want to explore all the possibilities. For that, I think a physical medium makes sense. I want to have this thing go out to a lot of people, and I like the idea of having something that gets sold <laughs> just as a creator. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's definitely a possibility that I'm looking at. It's my understanding that the Japanese market is one that still pays attention to physical media, that they still yeah. buy CDs and Blu-rays. Yeah. I mean, it's really fantastic. I was in Tokyo in, uh, I think, 2019, and you go to Tower Records there, right in the middle of town, 
And there's like four floors of just, you know, they've got classical, then you got rock, and then you got a floor that's just K-pop. And then you got a floor that's J-pop. So it's like so amazing to see a huge store like that, you know, and it's vinyl, but it's also CDs. And then, and it's just filled with people. And you're like, what planet is this? It's fantastic. I think in a lot of ways, the Japanese culture, they embrace this stuff. A lot of these things, they really understand a lot of the things about this culture, maybe that sometimes we even overlook. My uncle played trombone. His name is Lloyd Olliate. He played trombone on all the great movies from like 1950 to like 1985, Star Wars, everything. And later on, when he was kind of slowing down, he'd go on these tours of Japan with with a bunch of other trombones. And they just have like these trombone orchestras touring Japan. Because the Japanese just love stuff like that. We don't get trombone orchestras coming through Santa Monica. But, you know, in Japan, you can. So I love that about that culture. Yeah, and it's, I think... In America, and possibly in Europe as well, we kind of get into kind of a common mindset as audio professionals, possibly. And we can't forget that it's not always all about streaming or all about one particular thing that I think we fail to remember that there's these these subcultures where things like selling physical media is a common thing, like Blu-rays or CDs. And we tend to just kind of pay attention to the mainstream in the United States and go, oh, well, it's all about streaming. But right. maybe that's true here. But in some other part of the world, some other trend is happening and we have to be aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. For those that don't remember, and of course, I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes just to go back to WCA number 378. That's where Ryan first appeared. I want to ask a little bit about things with your studio these days. You've been at this a while. You're doing stuff. You're working. You probably have everything you need to get done what you need to get done, whether it's for the petty estate or whether it's for yourself or any other clients. Mm -hmm. Is there anything out there that you're constantly in search of or craving or wanting for your studio that you feel your studio is lacking? Or is it just all just extra stuff at this point? I think I've kind of got everything I need. There's certain things that are going to be happening with the software that I think is going to be great. One of the things is maybe integrating the Dolby Atmos renderer into Pro Tools. Okay, if you want to get really deep into the weeds here, I think that the the software that I'm using to do this stuff can evolve, and it is evolving, and that's really good. It's very important as you're doing these immersive mixes to be able to listen to how they will sound on different systems. So that's really important, you know, monitoring. I've got great monitors for the main monitors. I have ATCs, which are just brilliant. I'm a, I'm a big ATC fan. But for the headphones, you need to be able to listen to what it's going to sound like in Dolby Binaural, and you have to listen to see what it's going to sound like in Apple Spatial. And I think the more that the software evolves, the easier those kind of things will be. You don't have to switch a bunch of things and go through a bunch of hoops. So I'm kind of looking forward to just the software getting better. But in terms of the gear, I kind of got the stuff I need. Yeah. And I'm not really much of a, you know, a gearhead in that sense. I've got great mic preamps. I've got good mics. I don't really need the latest, greatest thing in terms of that. 
My time spent in Atmos is, is quite short compared to yours. Do you feel like the process is getting easier? In other words, the, the software and everything that gets developed, is that getting better in your opinion? And if so, is that changing how your workflow is? Well, the software as it stands now is pretty much the same thing that I set up in 2020 in terms of the workflow. It's Pro Tools, it's Adobe Renderer, it's Dadman. But this whole thing got set up with a lot of help. I was very lucky to have a guy who was working at Dolby at the time named Kerry Thomas. He really just set this thing up and Dolby came out and tuned my room. A guy named Brian Pennington came out and got the room all tuned up. So I was very lucky in that they kind of held my hand. Another guy from Trans Audio, Zach Winterfield, came out and helped me get the 714 thing set up. And also Avid, Gil Gowing, Francois, all the people over there were so helpful. We kind of built a template at that point, and I really haven't really deviated much from it. I'm really of the firm belief that you get something, you learn how to work it, you just go with that, and then you stop thinking about learning software. And all of a sudden, it just becomes transparent. So in that sense, I'm kind of in the same place. It's just that the software has become more reliable. There's been subtle things done to it that have made things better as it's evolved. But I kind of like to just get a template and then just go with that, because that way I'm not thinking about software and I'm back to just thinking about music. And the fact is, just having the canvas of, of a 714 system where you have three speakers in front of you, two on the sides, and then two in the back, and then four up top in the corners, that's just an immense palette. Honestly, you don't need to do a whole lot more than just move stuff around in that space and find a pleasing balance and let the music do the work. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And I mean, the, some of the changes that I, I've seen come in, say, just the Dolby Render alone, I'm wondering, like, sounds like you're kind of a creature of habit. You get it all set up and then you run with it. So when the changes come and you upgrade, does it really throw you for a loop when those changes come? No, it, does, it doesn't because it's just building on what's already there. But yeah, at some point, there's going to be a big change when they include the renderer into Pro Tools. And hopefully I'll have somebody help, help me do it and I'll get it, I'll grok it, and then we'll keep it like that for a long time. And once again, I just don't like changing things all the time. I don't want to change the OS all the time. I just don't like the idea, and I've always been this way with software. I like the idea of finding a system, and then when it works, just kind of locking it down. My Pro Tools system, I have a second system that I locked down in 2014, you know, and I'm running Pro Tools 12.4 or something like that. And that's what I do all my stuff with. Before that, I had a system that I locked down around 2009, and it's on a different machine, and it's running Pro Tools 7.4, and I still have that system because I can pull up an old thing that I did with Tom Petty and open the session up and it's there. <laughs> so I just like that. You know, I like the backwards compatibility of stuff. I just don't want to be a software nerd because it's one of those things where sometimes you can add one thing and it upsets the apple cart and everything else breaks. And I really value stability. I want to ask you a Grammy-related question. You were a Grammy-nominated producer-engineer before you did this solo album. Yeah, Hypnotic Eye, the last Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album in 2014 was nominated for Best Rock Album. And I believe Mojo was nominated for Best Rock Album as well. That was the album before that. So that was like 2010 and 2014. And 
Running Down a Dream, which was a film that I mixed a lot of the music for, won Best Long Form Video in, I think, 2008. And that was the Tom Petty doc. And then the concert for George was another long form video, you know, of the George Harrison Memorial concert that we did. And I, you know, I mixed that. That was done in 2002 or three or three. That won a Grammy for long form. So I've been Grammy adjacent, uh, you know, but I don't have anything on my, on my shelf. No, but I mean, does it affect you differently when it's like, hey, this is my record? I mean, yes, it's being nominated in the immersive category, which is a technical category, but you're the artist. Does that kind of shift your perspective a little bit and, and excite you in a different way? Yeah. Are you kidding? It's crazy. I still don't believe it. It's just, it's just so weird. Yeah, it's totally different if you're the artist. Uh, it's, it's overwhelming in, in a way, you know. I had no expectation of that. And here we are. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, it's an independent release. So Yeah. So this is important that we talk about this. And so this will be in the show notes, friends, everybody listening. Obviously, we're going to include a link to Immersive Audio Album. But I will include a direct link to Brian's record on Immersive Audio, and I'll include direct links to Apple Music. Now, you still have LE8.com. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'll include... It's really kind of more my producer kind of website. I never even, I never even did an artist website. You know, so. But, you know, you can learn more about me as a producer. And, and on the website, I just say, hey, my album is available here. Yeah. Did we miss anything that you wanted to mention or talk about? No, well, I just wanted, I guess the only thing that I wanted to mention is if, if we're talking about my album, I just wanted to give some shout out to Josh Hove, who played electric and lead guitar and nylon guitar and baritone guitar and slide guitar and ebo guitar, every kind of guitar you can think of, mandolin, whatever, ukulele. Steve Froney did the drums and the percussion. There's also a good friend of mine who I've known for years, a great composer and a piano player. His name is Steve Rucker. He played piano. My dear old friend, Mark Mann, who does a lot of work with Danny Elfman, he actually did a brass arrangement for me on a song called Now is the Time. What about bass? I played bass. You played bass. Oh. Okay, so <laughs> yes. you played bass and you sang. I played bass and I sang. I play bass pianos. This is what else do I do? Sometimes I play a little, a few guitars on something, but they're just really crappy guitars. I'm a great bass player thanks to editing. Um, <laughs> so, but I, I loved playing bass because it's just, I think the thing about that is I've always thought of really of, of rock music and most pop music as it's really two part counterpoint. And the counterpoint that I always think about is where the vocal is and where the bass is, where the vocal goes and where the bass goes. And they're very much related to each other. So being able to do the vocals and do the bass, I think it really helped kind of create the space that this record needs. The bass is just there, but it's not, it's not saying, hey, check me out. He's just holding up the whole house. So that was really a lot of fun. Herb Peterson played some great acoustic 12-string on a song called Home. Herb's just a great musician. He's been around for a long time. I, I got to meet him when Tom Petty and I did an album with Chris Hillman, one of the founding members of The Birds. We did this great album, and Herb is just such a great musician, so it was great to have him there. I was assisted by Zeke Reed, who's a great young guy in Topanga. He's a producer on his own. 
but he came out and helped me with all the microphones and all the stuff. And I have to also thank my wife, Judith Crow, for putting up with all this crap. (laughs) Yeah, no shit, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, honey, it's going to be really noisy. And, you know, she's trying to work in her office and we've got like fuzz guitar going at, you know, at 110 dB in the living room. So... It's so funny. The other day I said to my wife, I have a, had a client coming over to listen to some mixes. And I said, hey, just FYI, Rob's coming over at such and such time. And it's going to get, we're going to play some music loudly. And she goes, oh, I'm used to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's it's funny you do when you, when you just listen to someone doing an overdub. And you're punching and you're backing up. It's got to be frustrating as hell. You know, so you're like, nee, 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 nee. nope. Nee, 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 nee. <laughs> comes and goes. But we got a, such a great result from the thing. So I'm very thankful that I've got such great friends and people around me and supporting me. I'm thankful to them all. And thanks to my son, Zenon, who is just great. He would always give me feedback. He's 21, so I rely on him. He also gives me great playlists. <laughs> he's, he's my connection to what, these young kids are doing today. So That's right. Well, and, and the, the thing I want to mention, I always like to seize on these moments when everybody you're talking about and how grateful you are to them, it just goes back to the ideas of it's networking and friends that and relationships that you build over time and participating in things. And when you do that, then when it comes time to, in your particular case, do an album, you can pick up the phone and call Steve to play drums, right? You could pick, you mm-hmm. could pick up the phone and, and have all these people show up. It's really an important thing to not silo yourself off into uh, a world of not connecting with people and only dealing with the internet. You know, you got to get out and interact with humanity. Yeah, that's right. There's one, one of my lines is go out and play. This is your day to live on, you know, and this makes my big positive song about get up and make it happen because this is it because you're living it right now. You know, your life doesn't happen next week. It's happening this very moment. It is about trying to celebrate that thing and trying to be in the moment and just being appreciative of what a gift this is. So yeah, it's really special. And I'm hoping that some of the stuff on this album is inspiring. And some of the stuff's kind of cynical because I am kind of cynical too. So, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, some of the, I mean, there's some of the best, my favorite music, Steely Dan, you know, I mean, there's there's a good tradition there. Well, so if this isn't an example to all of you listening who are in this position where you have musical talents and you are an audio professional and you have designs on wanting to put some music out, let Ryan be your example that you can do it and Great things can come of it, so don't sit on that on that stuff that you might have in your head and uh, press on. Ryan, great to see you, my friend. Thank you so much for for coming to talk about your record. Very excited for you. I can't wait to see what happens. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Matt. And yeah, I second what you say. If you got an idea, just go out there and try it. Do it. Put it out there. What's going to happen? You know, what's the worst going to happen? We're going to happen. Nobody buys it. So. But you did it. But you, you know? did it, yeah. <laughs> It'll find an audience at some point if it yeah. doesn't see an audience immediately. So Yeah, yeah. Just so do it's, it. it's a great time to be a creative person right now. I really do think that. And I think the palette that Immersive Audio gives you is a really special thing. And I don't think it's going away. So I'm a fan of it. And so go out there and create something. Yeah, yeah. And just a final shout out to Immersive Audio Album, which has been helpful to you. And they've been helpful to me. And helping me 
plot out this jazz record and I'm so excited for it. So, well, thanks again, man. Good to see you and you take care. All right. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Ryan Olyate here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Just a reminder, you know what I'm going to say here. Please go to your podcast aggregator and leave a five-star review and let them know that you enjoy the show. And that'll tell everybody else that we have something cool going on here. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his magic voice at the top of the show. You know the drill. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. You can send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.